Well, good morning. I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, verses 42 to 47. Mark 15, 42 to 47. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. In summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of God. Please be seated. How would you like your body to be handled when you die? Given the demographics of our church, my guess is that most of you here probably haven't given that too much thought. But I know that as people hit their 50s and and 60s, or if they have had to deal with uh, the death of close family members, this is something that becomes a topic of pretty serious consideration. Do you go with a burial in a casket? If so... Do you leave it open or do you have it closed? Do you get buried below or above ground? Do you get cremated? Perhaps have your ashes scattered over the Pacific because you've always loved going to the beach or or maybe over Yosemite Falls because it's been the backdrop of some of your most memorable hikes. There are just a plethora of options. Sometimes this decision is dictated by cost. The price of the land here in the Bay Area can cost tens of thousands of dollars to buy a burial plot, especially in a scenic location. Cremation is much more economical. But there is also the issue of tradition and conviction. Most Christians over the years have opted for burial. In fact, churches used to commonly have graveyards connected to them, Um, Perhaps if we weren't here in Silicon Valley, it would be nice if we could buy a plot of land for all of you to be buried here at the church. Having a Redeemer graveyard would be great. It would remind us of death, the fact that we cannot escape it. It would remind us of the many faithful saints who have been part of this church through the years. It would serve as a monument to believers who ran the race well and are cheering us on as a cloud of witnesses, as we try to do the same, it would be a place where people can mourn and yet also receive spiritual help. 
Church graveyards might be countercultural today, but they can be extremely edifying spaces. They can remind us that we haven't forgotten the dead, but are simply waiting to be reunited with them in glory. So I would like to announce this morning that if for whatever reason we cannot build a multi-purpose room at our church, we're going to pivot to planning for a graveyard, okay? Okay, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. Don't send me emails afterwards. In all seriousness, though, Christians often prefer to be buried. That's how the bodies of the dead were handled in biblical times. But if you read the Bible, you know that there is no clear biblical prescription or prohibition on how to handle your body after death. A burial has been more common over the years, but we know that many saints have been cremated, including those who were cremated, in a sense, as martyrs for Christ in the fires of persecution. And the method of handling one's body after death is really not the ultimate issue. The important thing for Christians to remember is that our current bodies are passing away. They're tense, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. They, they will be destroyed, but, but our spirit will, will live on. And we look forward to the day when we will receive a new body, an imperishable one, as those who trust in the resurrection of the dead. Yet there is something about wanting to show honor in death. The loved ones go to great lengths to make sure that the bodies of their family members are treated honorably. Our nation has protocols for how to handle the care or how to care for the bodies of those in our armed forces who die in battle. During World War II, burying the dead was often handled by individual soldiers on the scene out of necessity, but there were also dedicated units like the United States Quartermaster Graves Registration Service. They had the singular task of finding and burying every fallen American soldier. And they are often considered some of the unsung heroes of the war. In death, the respectful thing to do in our culture is to treat the bodies of those who have died with great honor. And the same was true in Jesus' day. And this is what we see when he died. Last week in our exposition through Mark, we considered Jesus' final hours on the cross. He was forsaken by God for our sins as he offered up his life. Today we will see that his death was confirmed by many and that his death provided an opportunity for one of his disciples to boldly demonstrate his commitment to Christ. As Christians, we often focus on Jesus' death and we focus on his resurrection, rightly so. But what, we, what can we learn from his burial? Well, there are two lessons I want you to consider this morning, two lessons that arise out of Mark's account of Jesus' burial. First, I want you to notice in verses 42 and 43 that Jesus' burial was an act of Christian courage. Jesus' burial was an act of Christian courage. In verse 42 of Mark 15, we learn that it was evening on Good Friday. Mark wrote that it was the day of preparation. 
This was not the day before the preparation of the Passover. That was already being observed. Mark clarifies that this was simply the day before the Sabbath, or the day before Saturday. And since work was prohibited for the Jews on the Sabbath, the fact that evening had come meant there wasn't much time before the Jews were required to rest. Now back in verse 34 of chapter 15, we discover that Jesus died on the cross shortly after 3 p.m. on Friday. That was the ninth hour of the Jewish day. And sunset in Jerusalem during this time of the year is usually around 6 to 7 p.m. So if Jesus was to be buried, things needed to happen pretty quickly. And that's what Mark is indicating to us in verse 42. Now, in verse 43, we are introduced to a man named Joseph. He was from Arimathea. It's not entirely clear where Arimathea was located, but many people associate it with the town of Ramathaim, or Rama, which was the birthplace of the prophet Samuel in the Old Testament. This was a town about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. But Joseph had clearly settled in Jerusalem. We learn in verse 43 that he was a respected member of the council. The council here is a reference to the ruling council of the Jewish people, the, the Sanhedrin. He was one of several dozen men who were trusted with the task of deciding upon crucial matters for the Jews. They were the, the council who had condemned Jesus to death. Now we learn in Matthew 27 that Joseph was a rich man. We also learn that he had just purchased a newly hewn tomb in the area. This wouldn't have been a tomb just for himself, but it would also have been for his family. All of this indicates that he had settled down and established roots in Jerusalem. Mark also describes him in verse 30 or 43 as looking for the kingdom of God. Now that's an indication that he was open to the message that Jesus was proclaiming. He was waiting and hoping for the Messiah to come. And if you go to Luke 23, he is described there as a good and righteous man. Notably, Luke mentions that he had not consented to the council's decision and action regarding Jesus. That means that either he didn't make it out to the middle-of-the-night trial of Jesus that had been orchestrated by the chief priests, or that he had attended, but didn't positively indicate his approval of the Sanhedrin's decision to condemn Jesus. So Mark and Matthew and Luke all mention Joseph, and they give us different details about his background. But, but I want you to turn with me for just a moment to the Gospel of John. Okay, John 19, John 19, 38. And I want you to see this for yourself, so please find your way there in your Bibles. John 19, 38. John gives us even more insight into who Joseph was. Okay, John writes in verse 38 of chapter 19, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. 
So look at verse 38. John tells us explicitly there that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but that he followed him secretly because he feared the Jews. Okay, let's, let's stop here and just think for a moment about who this guy was. Okay, he was wealthy and respected. He had settled in an important city. He cared about his family. He held a certain level of influence in his local community. He was known for being good and righteous. He was also a disciple of Jesus, but he was still scared of what his peers and community would think of his religious beliefs. Does that sound like anyone you know? Does that sound perhaps like you? Joseph doesn't show up anywhere in the Gospels until the burial of Jesus. Why? Why doesn't Joseph show up? Well, he was a relatively decent person, even well-respected, but doesn't seem like he had done anything noteworthy in his faith that was worthy of our consideration. He was following Jesus in secret, holding on to the respectability of his life because he was scared of what true devotion to Jesus might mean for him. But the death of Jesus ignited something in him. And back in Mark chapter 15, verse 43, we learn that he, he took courage. He took courage. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Oh, what is courage? Courage is boldness in the face of danger or opposition. And courage is what Joseph summoned as Jesus died upon the cross. He was probably aware of all or at least most of the events of the day. As a a Sanhedrin member, Joseph probably had heard about or was even present for the midnight arrest and the mock trials and the trial before Pilate. And as Jesus hung upon the cross, Joseph had hours to consider what that meant for himself. The Messiah that he had been waiting for was suddenly dying. And during that that quick turn of events, Joseph probably began outlining a plan in his mind about what he might be able to do after Jesus died. As a disciple, he had certainly heard and seen many of the things Jesus did. He was a believer. He believed Jesus' message about the kingdom. He did not think that Jesus deserved to die. But he was powerless to change all that. His influence had limits. Yet as Jesus was dying, Joseph started trying. He started trying to figure out how to honor him after he died. Knowing that it was Friday, Joseph knew that there wouldn't be much time after Jesus' death to bury him. But it must have clicked for him sometime that day that he had just purchased a a relatively new tomb. one, One that he hadn't needed to use yet. This was a burial plot he had invested in for the future, and it couldn't have been too far away. So that would have been helpful given that time was of the essence. And in those hours preceding Jesus' final breath, Joseph realized that his family investment could be used in a more helpful way than he had initially anticipated. 
But he still had to figure out a way to get Jesus' body. Approaching Pilate was no small thing. He was the Roman governor of the area. And in the afternoon, Roman governors were off duty. They worked early in the morning so they could play in the afternoon. But Joseph, perhaps even having called in some favors or having somehow used his position, was able to gain access to Pilate. And he asked Pilate to allow him to have the body of Jesus so that he could give it an honorable burial. Joseph didn't take all this action just because he was a good Jew and thought all Jews should be properly buried. And notice that he only asked for Jesus' body. He wasn't concerned about the other criminals who were crucified with Jesus. He only asked for the body of Jesus because he was a believer of Jesus. And in the moment, he realized that it was time for him to boldly live out his faith. This was a risk. It was dangerous for Joseph to make this request. Pilate could have lumped him with Jesus and deemed him a danger to the state. The Sanhedrin might have kicked him out of their council. His, his reputation among mainstream Jews would have probably suffered. He would be making himself ceremonially unclean by touching a corpse before the Sabbath. And for what? Jesus. Jesus was dead. But for Joseph, this is where his faith worked. He still believed that Jesus was worthy of honor. Perhaps he even held out hope in his resurrection. At the very least, it seems that he believed that Jesus was a man of God who had been wronged. And Joseph realized that he had the resources and the relationships and the ability to serve the Lord in a unique way. He came to understand that true disciples do not hide themselves in the comfort of secrecy forever. If you are a true disciple of Jesus, people should know. People should know. Maybe not in your first team meeting, or on the first day of school, or just after moving into a new place, but there must be a time when your commitment to the Lord causes you to use your time and your influence and your resources in a way that makes you more than just a good and righteous person in the eyes of the world, but in a way that makes you a follower of Christ. Maybe you need to courageously declare your convictions about Christ in a relationship you're in with a non-Christian and run the risk of that relationship ending. Maybe you need to courageously share the gospel with a friend or family member and run the risk of them thinking that you actually want to convert them. Maybe you need to courageously stand up for a godly perspective that may not be widely embraced at a, at a school or a community meeting. We can easily lament the fact that it's not always easy being a Christian here in the Bay Area. But Redeemer... God has placed you here for a reason. It's not to make a big name for yourself or so that your kids can grow up in a comfortable, safe environment with a good education or so that you can become relatively wealthy or go on nice hikes or go to the snow on the weekends. That is not why you're here. God has placed you here as a believer 
Just like he placed Joseph of Arimathea in Jerusalem so that you can do his, your part in his kingdom work. Joseph reminds us of that. God brought just the right person with just the right resources to have Jesus properly buried in a tomb in a narrow window of time. And God has placed you in various situations with just the right resources to properly honor Jesus in your life. The question is, will you be courageous enough to do what God has called you to do? Think of something that you know you should do as a Christian, but that's hard for you to do. Think of something right now. Every one of us has something that we know we should do, but it's just hard for us. It could be ending a relationship. It could be praying more in front of others. It could be giving more to God's work. It could be having a a hard conversation with someone. It could be just loving a hard family member to love. It could be giving up a promising career to better serve the Lord with your time or serve your family. It could just be getting more involved at church. Now ask yourself, do, do I have the courage to do that? If not, pray for the courage to do that. Through Joseph of Arimathea, we learn that Jesus' burial was an act of Christian courage. It's, it's a lesson to all of us that we too must have courage to do hard things for Jesus and not just stay comfortable living a respectable life. The second lesson we learn from our passage today is that Jesus' burial was a confirmation of his death. First, it was an act of Christian courage, but it was also a confirmation of his death. We see this in the remaining verses of chapter 15. Jesus' burial was a confirmation of his death. In, in verse 44, after Joseph's request, Mark writes that Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus should have already died. As I've said before, crucifixion victims would often hang on the cross for days, but, but Jesus had already been viciously scourged and beaten. Before he even got to Calvary, he had crumbled under the weight of bearing his own cross. So his time on the cross was relatively short. Still, this surprised Pilate. He wanted to make sure that Jesus was, in fact, dead. So, summoning the centurion, he asked him. Now, I want you to turn with me again to John 19. John 19. John 19, 31 to 37. Because those verses give us a helpful summary of how it was confirmed that Jesus had indeed died on the cross. John 19, verse 31. It says, Since it was the day of preparation... And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. 
And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Again, Jesus wasn't in good shape on the cross. His death did not need to be hastened like the others who were being crucified. He didn't need to have his legs broken to speed up the process. The soldiers could see that he was dead and they confirmed it through piercing his side. And all of this was observed by the centurion. He might have been the most reliable witness Pilate could have asked for, an experienced and trusted soldier. And back in Mark chapter 15, verse 45, when Pilate learned from the centurion that Jesus was dead, Pilate granted the corpse to Joseph. Pilate was making a concession to Joseph and the Jews while the Romans wouldn't have any qualms with keeping crucifixion victims up for longer on the cross. They were sympathetic to Jewish customs and law. And one of the applicable Old Testament laws related to crucifixion is found in Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. Just listen as they read those verses for us. And, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not devile, defile excuse me, your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So it, it was not Jewish practice to let bodies hang outside at night. And so because of the Jewish law and their unique Sabbath rules, the Romans often allowed Jews in Jerusalem to take the bodies of those crucified down earlier than normal. And historians attest to this. This was a small mercy from the Romans who didn't always desire to punish a victim's family and community unnecessarily. And since we know that Pilate didn't consider Jesus to be a grave danger, he granted to Joseph the body of Jesus. Mark actually uses the word corpse to emphasize that Jesus was dead. So Joseph went to work, and John 19, 39 tells us that he was assisted by Nicodemus, another member of the Sanhedrin who was open to Jesus' ministry. So Joseph provided the tomb, and he provided the linen shroud. Nicodemus provided the burial perfumes and ointments. And after taking Jesus down from the cross, they would have first washed his body, then they would have wrapped it in linen and placed fragrant ointment of myrrh and aloes in the folds of the linen. This was to keep the stench of death at bay, and it was also believed to have a slightly preserving effect on the corpse. Now, just for your reference, there is a famous relic known as the Shroud of Turin that is believed by some to be the linen shroud described here. And that's been heavily debated. There have been all kinds of scientific tests done on it. Nature articles have been written about it. I'm no expert on the matter, but I'm very skeptical that it is legit. Okay. In any case, after having wrapped Jesus' body, these two men brought it to Joseph's tomb, which John tells us was in a nearby garden. It was almost certainly one of the many tombs that have been discovered, which were cut into the limestone rock around Jerusalem. These tombs were required to be at least 75 feet outside the old city walls. Most thousand of these niche tombs have been discovered in the area. They were often about nine feet by six feet, 
with ledges for bodies, and also smaller tunnels carved into the sides of these tombs to to store ossuary boxes, which were used to store bones. So after a person was buried and placed on one of the ledges of these tombs, they would wait for about a year after the period of mourning was over, and they would go back into the tombs, unroll the stones that covered them, and basically collect the, bo- the bones of the body because the rest of the flesh had decayed and put them into these boxes to store on the sides of the tombs. And that's how they could store a whole family or multiple members of a family in these tombs in a relatively small space. So Jesus' body, having been cleaned and, and wrapped and perfumed in a short time period, was taken to Joseph's new family tomb. And after being buried in that tomb, Joseph, Mark writes, rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. So I know you've seen a lot of pictures of this stone in different Sunday school materials. Don't think rough, big boulder, okay? Think flat, large, circular stone that could be rolled into a groove on the ground. It's like a circular door, okay? Then we read in verse 47 that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Here again, two women are mentioned. They were witnesses to Jesus' death on the cross back in verse 40, and they are witnesses again to his burial. And they don't seem to have much interaction with Joseph and Nicodemus. Now, that might seem a bit odd initially, but if you think about it, these two women might have been wondering why these two Sanhedrin members were even there. Joseph had been a closet disciple, And though we know that Nicodemus was interested in what Jesus had to say and seemed inclined toward him at various points in his ministry, we don't know how he carried himself during the whole of Jesus' ministry. Perhaps the women at the tomb just thought that they were doing their their Jewish duty, and so they witnessed the, the, the process of burial as women, but they didn't seem to be very involved that Friday. But it does seem that these two Marys wanted to know where Jesus was buried so that they could properly anoint him. They knew that the time was short before the Sabbath. Joseph and Nicodemus likely tried to do their best, but we'll see next in chapter 16 that these women came back on or after the Sabbath on Sunday to do a more thorough job of anointing Jesus' body and offer their own form of honor. Now, over the years, people have challenged Jesus' death and resurrection. Some have claimed that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He just swooned there for a while. But Mark's gospel simply does not give us any reason to believe that. He writes that Jesus breathed his last on the cross and that the centurion witnessed it and that Pilate recognized it and the actions of Joseph and the woman confirmed it. It's almost as if Mark is giving us an apologetic defense in these verses to the claims that Jesus did not die. He emphasizes that it was clear to multiple people from different groups that Jesus had indeed died. Some have also claimed that the woman went to the wrong tomb on Sunday. That's why it was empty. But here in Mark 15.47, it's clear that the women knew where Jesus was buried. There's another theory by a fringe Muslim group known as the Ahmadi Muslims that Jesus survived the cross, recovered from it, and traveled to Kashmir where he finished his life and died a normal death. And he's buried at a place you can visit today called the Raza Bal. 
theories abound. But what we have seen today is that Jesus actually died. This was verified by Roman leaders and soldiers. It was verified by members of the Jewish Sanhedrin. It was verified by Jesus' female followers. And Jesus was buried according to Jewish custom. He was given the same kind of burial that others received. And archaeology has confirmed the testimony of the gospel writers. The account of Jesus' death in the gospels is true. And this is an important point to establish because our Christian faith is not based on myth. It's not based on some kind of wishful thinking. Jesus was a real man who really died and who was really buried. His burial was a confirmation of his death and that that truth is the hinge upon which our hope as Christians pivots. For the resurrection of Jesus that we'll consider next time is, is only good news if Jesus truly died and was truly buried. And so Mark wants us to know at the end of his gospel that Jesus' burial was legit. And it proved that he really died. Now before we conclude, I I want you to turn with me to, to just one more passage. Matthew 27. Matthew 27. One last passage. Matthew 27, verses 62 to 66. Matthew 27, 62. Matthew writes, The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Notice here that the chief priests and the Pharisees did not think that Jesus would actually rise from the dead. But they feared that his disciples would steal his body and claim that he did. So they asked for a seal at the tomb and for a guard. And Pilate granted their wish. Now, what I take from Matthew 27 and from the account of what Joseph did in Mark 15 is that Jesus' death can either give you courage to act for him or it can make you fearfully afraid. You can respond to the truth of Jesus' death by honoring him with your resources and your energy or you can try to ignore and cover up the implications of his death. What will you do? What will you do? May God give us all the courage to follow him faithfully. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are always amazed at the many details that surround Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection and, and how you orchestrated events in just the right way so that your son would even be honored in his burial and it would still be according to your law and and you would use a man like Joseph, uh, an unexpected disciple who had the resources and had the relationships and had the ability to, to get Jesus buried in just the right place. 
so that it could be that the place that would serve as the evidence for his resurrection a couple days later. And Father, we thank you for how you used Joseph and, and how you stirred in him a desire to follow you with conviction, even at the risk of his own reputation and influence in life. Father, help us too to to realize that you have given us influential positions and, and wealth and resources to further your kingdom and to honor your son. May you help us to be a church that does that faithfully. We pray these things in the name of your son, the one who died and was buried and who rose again for us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.